it's always good when we meet somebody for the first time and we sense we just click. Uh, well, of course, that's what happened two and a half years ago to me when I first came here. Uh, you and I just, just click, and it's been click, click, click ever since. Fathers, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is truth and it's living and active and powerful, and we ask that your Holy Spirit, who guided those who wrote the Bible for us, will guide us now as I speak and we listen and think and consider and respond. Help us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, honestly, I'll try not to be too long this morning because you have had <laughs> quite a while already. Um, we're going to begin by reading the story of Palm Sunday. We're not actually going to be looking at it, but just a snippet from it. Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years before this, the prophet Zechariah was led to write these words. 500 years before, pointing to this day in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he would come into Jerusalem offering himself to the Jewish people as their rightful king and messiah. A king would normally never, never ride on a donkey. He would always come on a war horse with a great entourage of probably military personnel. And the fact that Mark tells us the colt on which Jesus rode was unbroken. Nobody had ever sat on it. And you try riding a pony for the first time and see how you get on. I haven't done quite that, but I know what happens. Um, this was really quite supernatural, that the Lord Jesus should ride in a colt which was completely untrained, unbroken, and as far as we know, he didn't get thrown off. And he comes riding into Jerusalem, offering himself as king. Ah. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna originally meant save now, save Lord, but it became an expression of praise. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Words from Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I'm going to think this morning for a little while about that question. Who is this. The crowd was pretty vast. Word had spread in Jerusalem that Jesus was on his way. So there were folk coming out from the city of Jerusalem to meet him, and the folk coming with him from Bethany, so people were converging on where Jesus was. Pretty vast crowd, and highly excited 
sensing that something very special was happening. And the question was, who is he really? Who is this Jesus? Well, we're going to look at one or two things to answer that question. We know him by lots of different titles and names because many apply to him rightly so. But I want to remind us this morning that among other titles, he is the Lamb of God. When the Apostle John set out to write his version of the life and times of Jesus, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, he described what John the Baptist had said at the very beginning as Jesus was beginning to appear in the area. And John the Baptist had come to prepare the way for Jesus to call the people to repentance and get right with God and be baptized in the Jordan and so on. And one day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the title John applied to our Lord Jesus. Now the Lamb of God, as we know very well, was provided by the Father. I'm going to take you back for a few moments to the book of Genesis because right through Scripture there are indications of God sending His Son to do what only Jesus could do for us. You remember Abraham and his wife Sarah had a miracle baby. They were both beyond the age of producing children. But in fulfillment of the promise of God, God gave them a son called Isaac, and of course they were naturally delighted and thrilled that this had happened to them in their old age. And then one day God tested Abraham's faith to the absolute limit. When we ask God to strengthen our faith, we better realize what we're asking for. Because the more God strengthens our faith, the more drastically he is liable to test our faith. To purify it, to refine it, to make it even stronger. And one day Abraham got a call from God and God told him to do something absolutely horrendous, unthinkable. To take his teenage boy Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice in one of the mountains. But Abraham had learned to obey God. And so next day he took the donkey and servants and took Isaac and wood for the sacrifice and fire and so on. And as they travelled on together, the question was put by Isaac to his dad. Dad, you've got the wood for the fire and you've got the knife, the, 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 the knife but, but and the fire, you've got that too. But where's the lamb? He was basically saying to his father, you, you forgot to bring the lamb. And Abraham replied in words which were truly prophetic, God himself will provide the lamb. Most of you know the story, I imagine. They got to the place God had indicated, and Abraham built his altar, and Isaac was bound and obviously consented to be bound, and laid on that altar, a willing sacrifice. And Abraham lifted the knife, and instantly the Lord called to him, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy, don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, 
saying, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What kind of faith is that? Tremendous faith that you and I would not probably claim to have. And Abraham looks up and there in a thicket he sees a ram, a male sheep caught by its horns. He goes over and takes the ram and sacrifices it instead of his son. A substitute provided by God. Yes, our Lord Jesus is the Lamb of God provided by the Father. Before we go much further in the Old Testament, we come to the book of Exodus. And we come to the time when after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, it's time for the Jewish people to be released on their way to the new life in the new land. They have been crushed and treated most horribly as slaves by Pharaoh. And God is saying, enough is enough. And so the time comes when the Lord tells Moses to tell the whole community that on the tenth day of the month they were to take a lamb for each family, one for each household, and they were to sacrifice that lamb after four days, and they were to sprinkle the blood of that lamb on a lintel in the doorposts of their homes. And God said to Moses, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both man and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. But when I see the sign the blood will be a sign for you in the houses. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. So God is a God of judgment, remember, as well as a God of mercy. And the Egyptians were a very pagan people, worshipping pagan gods and treating these Jewish refugees terribly, horribly. And it was time to release them. And the blood was put on the lintel and the doorposts of the Jewish homes. Next morning, the firstborn in every home in Egypt is dead, as God had declared it would be. But not one of the Jewish people was dead. This is our God distinguishing between the good and the evil. The Lamb of God is obviously provided by God. God the Father sends His Son. Again and again in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is described and describes himself as being sent by the Father. The Father sent him into the world to be the sacrificial lamb, the substitute for us on the cross of Calvary. And this Lamb of God is not surprisingly proclaimed in the Scriptures. In the book of Revelation alone, 27 times, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God. He's described as the Lamb of God in terms of the book. The book. No, the blood, first of all. Revelation chapter 5. You remember John is enabled to see into heaven. John exiled in the island of Patmos, one of the Greek islands. He's able to see into heaven. And he says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. A lamb, looking as if it had been slain. And this lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, in the very center of the throne, with all the visible marks of a lamb that had been slain. He's also portrayed in the book of Revelation in terms of a book. In chapter 21, almost the end of the Bible, we're told that 
the Lamb has a book of life. Chapter 21 and verse 27. In terms of the city of God that is portrayed, that future city of God, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why are we here this morning? Why are we able to worship God? Why is our love overflowing to our gracious God? Because he sent the Lamb. Because Jesus shed his blood that has cleansed us from our sin and made us fit people for the company of the living God. And our names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, how wonderful. And he's also portrayed in Revelation as the bride. The bride. The bride of Christ. John says, I heard a, what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns, let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Every believer in all the ages together form the bride of Christ. What an honor! To be his bride. Look at a bride to be sitting here amongst us this morning. What an honor to be the bride of Christ. You and I together and millions more besides. And of course also the Lamb of God is associated with blessing. In chapter 5 again, we find there that John says, he looked at this heaven, he heard what was going on in heaven, and they sang a new song, You are worthy of singing to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the book, the scroll, and to open the book, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, praising God, praising the Lord Jesus, because he was slain. Oh, yes, it was the Lamb of God who rode on that horse, no, that donkey, into the city of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. He is not only the Lamb of God, mercifully for us, he is also the lover of sinners. We thought some weeks ago, I think, in looking at the first chapter of Revelation, that he is described as unto him who loves us. Not loved, past tense, it's all over, no, no, it's not all over, praise God. He loved us in the past, he loved us in the future, but he loves us this morning, he loves us now. He goes on loving us. He's a lover of sinners. All human love, no matter how apparently perfect it is, it's not really perfect. It has imperfections. But the love of Jesus is absolutely perfect. He loves us collectively. Collectively. Yes, collectively. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. Read there. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, 
as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's plural there. He loves us collectively. He loves us collectively. And if we go to 2 Corinthians 5, we find something important there about the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes to these Christians in Corinth who were quite good at getting all sorts of things wrong. Their Christian lives were far from perfect in many ways. And yet Paul writes to them and says in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians and, and verse 14, he says, Christ's love compels us, compels us, that's a strong word, compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, most non-Christians, varying degrees, live for themselves. And one of the great changes we have to get used to when we become Christians is stop living for yourself and start living for Jesus. And Paul says, the love of Christ is the thing that compels us. We respond to a love such as we've never found anywhere else or never known before. And interestingly, this word is a very descriptive word because it describes, imagine a hillside, imagine water coming down from a hill, hilltop. And there's a ravine. The water's coming down between rocky walls. It can't go to the right, it can't go to the left, it can only go that away. That's what this word means. It compels us to go in one direction. Ah, not all over the place. But a love that is 100% committed to responding to the Lord Jesus Christ. To his love. It's wonderful to respond to someone who loves us. Love calls forth a response. And perfect love calls for the highest response of all. The love of Jesus. He loves us collectively, but then he also loves us individually. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, The Son of God loved me, me, and gave himself for me. Paul was bitterly opposed to the church and to Jesus before he became a Christian. He thought the Christians were mad, he thought they were a threat. He wanted to wipe them out. He travelled here and there to arrest Christians and if possible get them put to death. And he couldn't get over the fact that Jesus, whom he had persecuted so horribly, loved him, and loved him, and loved him, and saved him. Oh, when Lazarus took ill, his sisters Mary and Martha did the most natural thing in the world for friends of Jesus to do. They sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love, the one you love, is sick. There's a very important lesson in prayer here. What's the lesson? You have heard people, and I have heard people, in a prayer gathering, praying for someone who was in need. Perhaps they were sick, perhaps they had other problems. And these well-meaning Christians, praying for their friend, say, Lord, you know what kind of Christian she is. She's a wonderful believer. She gives up everything for you. She's devoted to you. She does A, B, C, and D. Hang on a minute. What are they talking about? They're telling God how much this person loves him. Ah, but dear Martha and Mary understood a, a stronger spiritual argument. What is it? Not my love for God, but his love for me. So remember that when you're praying with somebody else. 
Don't tell the Lord how good they are and how wonderful they are. He knows all already. Plead his love for them. That's a much stronger argument to use in prayer. Interestingly, the Greek word that Mary and Martha used is the love for, which means brotherly love, filial. Lord, the one you love is sick. But then you see, John comments on this. John uh, uh, describes what went on after that. And he says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Aha, but John uses a different word. John uses the agape word. The word which is for God's love. Ah, oh yes. Collectively he loves us. Individually he loves us. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what is the root of all the problems on planet Earth this morning? There is only one great root, and that root is sin. And Jesus is the only person who can deal with it. And he can deal with it adequately and perfectly. No wonder we exalt him and worship him this morning. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And the lover of sinners who loves not just people who are kind and decent and good, but people who are awful, selfish, brutal, cruel, vicious, loves them, the lover of sinners. What else is our Lord Jesus? Lamb of God, lover of sinners. Ah, he's Lord, he's Lord of all. When Peter was preaching in the home of the Roman soldier Cornelius, it's there recorded in Acts chapter 10, in his preaching Peter says, this is the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. He declares that at the very beginning of his preaching. He doesn't say, I know a nice friend who could help you. He doesn't say, I can offer you a saviour who could save you from your sin. He blasted out to them. This person I'm telling you about you know who he is? He's the big chief. He is Lord of all. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of all. Oh, that declaration was made, and has been made over and over again, of course, in Scripture, by God. God wants the world to know who Jesus is. The trouble is that most of the world don't know who Jesus is. But as Paul wrote to these Christians in Turkey in Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying for them and he tells them what he's praying for them and he says among other things he's praying that they will understand and really appreciate the incomparable great power of God his incomparably great power for us to believe and he goes on to describe that power and if he does he goes on to say God placed all things under Jesus feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body I love that passage. That blesses me every time I read it. You see, it tells us that Jesus is not only the head of the church. It's that. The Queen's not the head of the church. The Pope's not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. But it tells us more than that. It tells us while being head of the church, God, his Father, has appointed him head over everything else. All our politicians, all our military forces, everything else. Jesus is actually head over the whole lot. Oh, that's encouraging, is it not? Declaration by his Father. And in Philippians chapter 2, of course, we know in that familiar passage that 
Paul tells us that because Jesus was willing to face death, even death on the cross, therefore he says, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name of a very name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day is coming, says Paul, when throughout the whole planet, every tongue will be forced to confess who Jesus is, and forced to bow the knee to him. All the atheists, all the agnostics, all the out and out unbelievers, all the people who have tried to find salvation in, in another religion, they will all have to bow the knee, but it won't save them. It's too late. But they will be made to bow and acknowledge that they were wrong and God was right. Jesus is Lord of all. On the day of Pentecost, interestingly, when the Spirit was poured out in power upon an infant church, and Peter got to preaching. Peter preached to that crowd of Jewish people who were there for the festival and preached to them, of course, on Jesus crucified and risen. And he says, exalted at the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You were looking for the Messiah, well he's here. He has come, he has died, he has been raised. But he is not only the Messiah, the Saviour, the Deliverer, he is the rightful Lord of all. And when the people heard that, it was too much for them. At that point they responded. They were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit was convicting them of sin and telling them who Jesus really is. And they cried out. Peter, as in the days of preaching later on in Cornelius' home, and Peter on the day of Pentecost was disturbed when he was preaching, had to stop preaching. And they said, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus, and so on. You'll be saved. He is Lord of all. By declaration from his father and and in the confession of his father. You see, the confession Jesus is Lord is an essential element in the gospel. Yes, he saves us from our sins, but he is not only a perfect saviour, he is the rightful Lord of all. And as Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, you remember in chapter 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. A belief in the heart is obviously the starting point. A personal belief in our mind and heart that yes, this is who Jesus is. He's all the Bible says he is. But more than that, I'm going to be willing to confess that that is true. Confession is an interesting word. It means to agree with somebody. And we're agreeing with God. And it's an outward thing. Belief in the heart is inward and personal and secret, if you like. But it's not secret when it's outward. 
We must be willing to stand and be counted and declare Jesus for who he is. And Paul continues, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all the call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is Lord in the confession of his people. But you know, when you are too upfront in today's society, you're liable to be in big trouble. Just recently I read of a young man who was a Christian, wanted to help others and care for others and felt very much attracted to social work as a, as a career. So he trained, he was training in a university degree to become a social worker. But on his Facebook he identified himself with a registrar in America who had refused to register gay marriages. What do you think has happened to him? He's been chucked out of the university. You're not suitable to be a social worker. You believe that stuff. Oh dear. Because he dared to confess Jesus is Lord. In Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing about the gifts of the Spirit and he begins by talking about the Holy Spirit and about this very thing we're talking about right now in First Corinthians chapter 12. He says, no one, <coughs> no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, but obviously not. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Who persuaded me? Who convinced me? Who brought me to my knees 60 years ago? The preacher? He played a part. But the Holy Spirit is the person who brings us to our knees. The Holy Spirit is the person who persuades us that we're sinners and there's no other way of being saved from our sin but by surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. And really evangelists don't do, do people any favors when they offer Jesus as Savior only. Well, putting Lord into the equation might be a bit off-putting. So we'll not mention him as Lord. No, that's terrible. It's awful. He must be declared as Lord. Because you see, all our troubles as Christians stem in a sense from our failure to live under the Lordship of Jesus. Having a Savior, that's great. He saved me from my sin. He gave me a new life. I've got eternal life. All great. Ah, but I must learn to live under the Lordship of Jesus. It's very sad that most of the British public know how poor politicians are, they know who our newsreaders are, they know who film stars are, they, knew, they know who actors are, they, they know what, all sorts of things about pop bands and all the rest of it. But most of them don't know who Jesus is. And here we read about a time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and everybody was asking the question, who, who is he? Who is he? They want to know his identity. How, how are we supposed to relate to this person? You want to know his identity? Well, the answer they came up with was he's a prophet of, of Nazareth. Of course, they were true in, in, in that respect. But it was just part of the truth. Just part of it. He is Saviour. And he is Lord. And it's more, more, more than high time that in this country Christians were up front 
especially Christian leaders and people who have influence over others and so on, and declaring unashamedly that Jesus is not only the only saviour of sinners, he is the rightful, rightful Lord of all. And if they put me in prison, I'm sure they'll come and visit me one year. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We were not still feeling our way. We're not still curious and wondering who Jesus is. You have revealed him to us in all his fullness of ability to save for all time those who come to you through him. Of all his, in all his majesty and glory and power. We thank you that we know this Jesus. He is most precious to us. And amazingly, we are most precious to him. And we ask that we may never find ourselves in a situation where we're unwilling to confess him as our Lord. Not just our friend, not just our saviour, but as our rightful Lord and Master. Give us that courage, Father, in small companies of people, in one and two conversations, and in public places, to confess without fear that Jesus is Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.